We're in the first chapter of the book of Habakkuk tonight, the book of Habakkuk. And we did uh, an introduction last week, and a lot of great information, not on my part, but because of Wikipedia and the internet and everywhere, all these other sources, some stuff that I didn't know about this prophet, and very, very interesting book. Authorship, uh, well, to start with, is the eighth book of the 12 minor prophets situated between Nahum and Zephaniah, if you're going to turn there in your Bibles. Um, there's three chapters, 56 verses, so it's a pretty short book. And again, authorship attributed to the prophet Habakkuk around 600 B.C. is when they think they wrote it. So about 200 years after the great prophet Isaiah wrote his prophecy. And the book of Habakkuk is this private conversation that he is having with the Lord. He's asking the Lord questions, the Lord is answering, he's hearing, and he comes to this place of understanding at the end. That's unique in the prophets. There's no part where Habakkuk is addressing the people Israel, the people of Israel directly, or the Lord through Habakkuk is addressing them directly. Again, it's just between Habakkuk and the Lord, but then we look into that and we understand what God is trying to say to us. There's some speculation as to who this man was. We talked about some things like that. He's possibly the son of the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings, which was a really interesting tradition that the, that the Jews maintain. Um, that son of the Shunammite had this miraculous birth and was the one that was raised by the dead, from the dead by the prophet Elisha. And the key verse in this whole book, guys, if we want to remember a a one verse out of all of Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And some of y'all will have the just shall live by faith. And that's the key verse in this prophecy. That's the message that God is getting across to us through Habakkuk in this book. It's a verse that the Apostle Paul quotes often and forms the basis, really, of the doctrine of Christian salvation. That, like we talked about in communion, salvation by grace through faith alone. And I'll start reading in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. This prophecy begins with this complaint. Some of your Bible may have a heading that says Habakkuk's complaint. He's complaining to God in a sense. How long? Why? And this is often how we may start our dialogues with the Lord, particularly when facing trials and hardships. Now, some of you are familiar with Job, this this man who suffered so much loss. He says a similar thing in the depths of his suffering in Job 19. He says, Behold, I cry out violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. It's very similar to what Habakkuk is saying here, isn't it? I think what's interesting, first of all, what I take from that, God never condemns or rebukes Habakkuk or Job 
for their questions or their complaints. Although, <laughs> with that caveat, although we're going to see in chapter 2, verse 20, after the Lord has provided these answers to Habakkuk and revealed to him the extent of his will, this is what he says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's think about that. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So our conversations may begin with questions or complaints, but there's a time for those questions to cease and to rest in his loving sovereignty. Do we agree with that? Sometimes that's a hard place to get to. I think the Lord fully expects us to come to him with our problems, and we should never think otherwise. 1 Peter 5, 6, fantastic verse. Who knows it? 1 Peter 5, 6. <laughs> Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And this is the key to this, casting all your anxieties upon him, casting all your cares upon him, maybe another translation, because he cares for you. He cares. He wants to hear from you. Again, to come, to complain, to question, and to wrestle with him, I think is godly. But ultimately, to yield to him in humility. That's the point. Not as Jacob. Does remember Jacob wrestled with God? That's what the word Israel means. Did you guys know that? Jacob, this, this, the, the patriarch of the nation of Israel, he was crippled in his defiance because he wouldn't let go. He wouldn't let go of that wrestling. He didn't get to a place to give me what I want. He was made lame in his determination to control his circumstances. So take that as you will. In times like this, it's easy and natural to feel that God's not listening. And this is where faith has to prevail over our feelings. Times when his word is preeminent. We heard Habakkuk's complaint, but King David says in Psalm 34, 17, he says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them from all their troubles. It feels like he's not hearing sometimes, doesn't it? Because we can't see him. It feels like that. That's natural. But we have to take it by faith that he does hear. He does care. He sent his son to prove how much he does care for us. So in this verse 2, this word violence, violence. Did you guys know? And I didn't know this until studying for this study, that that word violence is the word Hamas. Does that ring any bells for anybody in here? It's so pertinent to our current situation. The word violence is Hamas in Hebrew, Hamas. Now that word comes, now again, to clarify, Hamas, that terrorist organization, it, that's an anacronym. That's not one word. It's an acronym that means, you know, this, 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 this. But it is intended to be that word. That's an anacronym that's meant to be that word. In Arabic, the word means zeal. But it's the same. So Hebrew and Arabic, it comes from the same root word that that word violence is formed. But what we see in that culture is that type of religious zeal that prompts suicide bombings, forced conversions, 
and always has this overtly violent manifestation, right? That's how they picture their religious zeal. It often manifests itself in violent ways. And again, we can look simply at current events in Israel to see graphic images of the types of things to which Habakkuk is referring. Violence, violence, I see this going on, and why aren't you doing anything, Lord? And that's what he's crying out to God. This word was first used in Genesis 6, 11, where God says to Noah, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And we know that because of that corruption, that violence, God was forced to act in devastating fashion, flooding the earth. It's a very graphic representation of what that word and its consequences can mean. Yet there's more to this word than just physical violence. It's not always just physical violence that this word is talking about. It's also the same word that Sarah uses in Genesis 16 when she accuses Abraham of wronging her by taking Hagar as his wife. She says, you've wronged me, and it's that word Hamas. You've Hamased me by taking Hagar as wife and raising up this son to mock my son. Abraham here essentially did violence to their marriage in his unfaithfulness. Are we making that connection? It's a word also used to describe a false or malicious witness in Exodus and Deuteronomy, when Moses is giving the law, says if you're a malicious witness, you're, you're like, you, you're a Hamas-type witness. Someone who does violence to another's reputation or livelihood. And that's what that's talking about with that false witness, a malicious witness. King David uses this word over and over again in the Psalms, often related not just to his opponents in warfare, those physical opponents, but, but those who would slander him and those who would betray him. And finally, in Malachi 2.16, the Lord says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So, unfaithfulness is a type of violence, again, done to a family, terrorism or destruction inflicted on innocent children and relationships, again, through divorce or unfaithfulness. It's the same word. And when we, when we think about it that way, at least for me, it brings it a lot closer to home. It's easy to look at Hamas, the organization, and see violence. But what about our own lives or our own culture? And this is when, for me, Habakkuk's complaint becomes very personal and very relevant, because it's easy to say, I'm not like Hamas, for goodness sake. I mean, these people are the wicked, the most wicked of the wicked, right? It's easy to say, I'm not like them, but when you read these other verses, man, it starts to hit close to home. And to be sure, Jesus is just as concerned about the violence we harbor in our hearts as that which is perpetrated outwardly. Matthew 5, 21 and 22 says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
And we all understand that. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is saying it's not just the violence that manifests physically, that violence that may even result in murder, but rather the internal hatred and acts of the heart that makes us liable. And doesn't it seem like that type of hatred is just at epidemic levels in our culture right now? Where people are just wound right to that point where it's just one little thing and it's a road rage shooting or it's someone going ballistic at the airport or some, these things that we see every day in the news where people are so, so brimming with that type of hatred in their heart that it just, it's, it may not ever manifest, but we see it manifesting more and more. This terrible school shooting and, that just happened the other day and these things that happen daily, but all those things happen because that hatred that violence, that Hamas is being stored up in people's hearts day by day by day in these little ways. And that's the thing that Habakkuk saw in his culture too, that these things were endemic. They were epidemic in his culture, and he felt like God wasn't doing anything about it. And this last verse, it says, For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Sometimes it can feel like we're outnumbered when we try to not engage in those things. And he says um, that we're surrounded. Those of us that try to live different, who try to forgive and live in peace, we can find ourselves in the minority and even victimized, even victimized. So that's the complaint. That's how Habakkuk starts out. Now let's look at what God answers. Habakkuk 1.5 Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. That sounds awesome, right? That sounds like, okay, I'm ready for something great. I'm ready for something good. Something so good that I can't imagine it. But the Lord is preparing Habakkuk by telling him that the work he's preparing is astounding, unbelievable, but maybe unreasonable, unexpected in a way that he's not going to be okay with. He goes on to say, verses 6 through 10, For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. For those of you that may not know, the Chaldeans are the Babylonians. It's the same word, Chaldeans. That bitter and hasty nation, nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their, dr- their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses, I'm having a hard time. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might 
is their God. And I would venture to say that's not what Habakkuk was expecting God to answer to his complaint. A foreign Gentile nation, like the Lord had driven out of the land a thousand years ago, right? Now he's bringing them back for judgment on his own people. They're immoral. Their justice, it says, it comes from themselves. It's self-generated. That means they're cruel, by the way. That means they're cruel and unfair. That's a summary of that. It's human and sensual and treacherous. Then he compares them to various animals, you know, and I love this kind of stuff. Leopards, meaning their judgment will be swift. Wolves means that their appetites are ravenous and merciless. An eagle, think of an eagle swooping down on a prey who attacks with stealth and ferocity. It says they come with violence. That violence, the very thing that Habakkuk's complaining about, and God's saying, I'm going to send people that are full of violence. And he finishes this description by saying they're coming not for freedom, but to enslave. Not as worshipers of the true God, but idolaters. And there's no fortress, no ruler that can stop them. And again, I don't think that's what Habakkuk would have ever expected God to say. Gentiles, idolaters, unjust, oppression. That's what they had already. That's what he's already seeing in his culture. So to bring this home to me, I'm thinking, picture you're in your home. And you just finished watching the news or watching TV. You pour out your heart to God you, for your nation, for your family and their future. Maybe you go into a room and you're like, God, I just need to pray. God, look at my culture. Look at the violence and the oppression and the unfairness and the, the politics and all the garbage that's going in in our culture. And he says, you're right. It's awful. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to let Iran nuke you. Think about it. Like, that's what he's hearing. Like, I'm going to let China come and, and conquer you and invade your country and enslave you. Really? Like, that's, that's who you're going to bring? The Chaldeans, these Babylonians, these, these idolaters, these unclean people? Think about that. I'm sure Habakkuk would say, can't you just raise up a godly leader to lead us? Can't you just fix this by making everyone love one another or fixing our economy? We need a good old-fashioned revival, right? We need the right election results. We need better laws. We need a return to traditional family values. And all that's true, but that wasn't the plan. And Babylon burned Jerusalem and the temple to the ground in 586 B.C. This prophecy came true. This isn't, like the, this isn't theoretical stuff we're talking about. I mean, this is history. This really happened. But we see that process that... Their children were killed, kidnapped, and enslaved. And that's why the Lord told Habakkuk it would be astounding and unbelievable. And Habakkuk responds and questions again. He's not done with God. He hears him, but he's like, he's going he's gonna to respond. And I love this about Habakkuk. I love a couple things in this response because it shows that he knows who God is. He knows God's word. And, and he's pleading for his people, really. It starts out in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, 
O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are purer eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He's saying, this seems contradictory. And I know this language gets a little bit convoluted. But he's saying, you who are holy, righteous, and pure, who, who claims to have no tolerance for sin, how can this be? How can this be? How can, it, there's, this doesn't make sense. And in the original text, this is interesting. So the Jewish scholars, they actually changed this passage where it says, we shall not die. It says, you shall not die. But they thought that that was so like forward to God, so disrespectful of God in a way that they changed it, just so you know. So really, he's, he's, he's reminding God of who he is. That's the thing. He's trying to remind God of who he is and what his word says. And Habakkuk was not holding back here. That's the point I'm trying to make. He accuses God of being idle, which is lazy, of silence, which speaks of being complicit in the evil being perpetrated on the righteous. On the righteous. Trying to use God's word against him. Has anybody in here ever done that? Remind God of His Word so that you get what you want. I think I think you know I've tried to I I've, I've had those thoughts I've done that, and don't you hate when someone throws something you said, in my case out of pride or stupidity back in your face. You know I know certain people in my life that re- seem to remember every single word I've ever said, and can remember it in the in the quickest flash of memory, like, like, like just so quick and throw it right back in my, and, and you know, most of the time I'm like, you're right, I'm wrong. I you know, shouldn't, shouldn't have ever said that. But the Lord's never wrong and this never works with him. And let, to give you an example, I remember one time a man, he was going through a divorce and he vehemently quoted the verse we mentioned earlier from Malachi 2.16. And in the New King James, it says, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. And so as he was going through this divorce, he would pray that to God. He said, God, you hate divorce. You told me that. You told me that, and so this should never happen. And you need to, you know, you need to keep your word, basically. You need to bring my wife back to me. Like, you hate divorce. This shouldn't happen. The problem was this man's wife didn't hate divorce at all. Matter of fact, she really liked it, and she left him. Now... See, God also hated all the stuff that led up to the divorce. But he was fine with those things. He was fine with sin until it was time to reap its consequences. And then he began to quote God's word back to God. Now, it doesn't work that way. God knows and cherishes his own word so much that he's bound to keep it. And that's what's going on here. That's what's happening here. See, Again, God had given these scriptures 800 years before this prophecy. And Moses stood and told the people, if you fall away from God, you're going to be vomited out of the land and you're going to go into slavery. He had told them that if you fall away from me, this is exactly what's going to happen. But apparently 800 years goes by quick. And what short memories we have when it comes to our own sin. 
and what short memories we can also have when it comes to remembering the grace and blessings of God when faced with the consequences of our own choices and even the dreadful consequences of the choices of others. Habakkuk 1 in verse 14 through 17. And this is his second complaint. And it has a different, it has a different spin to it, but it's also kind of creating this scenario that he's showing God the absurdity of his decision, of God's decision. He's trying to point out, like, again, this is incongruent with your nature. And he says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? The he in here is speaking of the wicked, the Babylonian kingdom. And in this argument, Habakkuk is liking, likening the people of Israel to fish and even to lobster or crabs wandering around helpless. He's saying, you're treating us as unclean, like bottom feeders, but we're your people, your chosen people. And our ruler is you, not, we don't, you, you're supposed to watch out for us. Basically, he's saying God is devaluing his people. He then presents this absurd scenario where a man worships and idolizes his stinking fishing net. Imagine that, a stinky, has anybody ever used a fishing net? I mean, like, you don't, you don't keep those in your bedroom, right? You keep them out in the garage or a shed somewhere, you know. So, but this guy's worshiping his fishing net. And is allowed to prosper and flourish in this ignorant idolatry while God's people are shown no mercy. It's a very similar argument. We were talking about the prophet Isaiah that the Lord himself makes. And I wonder, so I, again, Isaiah wrote a couple hundred years before Habakkuk. And I think Habakkuk, there's a good chance he would be familiar with this account. And he, and he changes the characters, but it's the same idea that Isaiah uses, that God uses through Isaiah in chapter 44, in which the Lord describes an idolatrous lumberjack. Instead of a fisherman, it's a lumberjack. It's a man who chops down a tree, uses it to heat his home, and then uses some of the tree to make his God, which he then adorns and worships. I'll read that passage. It says, it says Isaiah 44, 19 and 20. No one considers nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. It's like, you know, he's using it, he's burning it up, he's, he's, he's profiting from it. But then, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Again, it's possible that Habakkuk was familiar with that prophecy. Maybe not, but it's the same principle, and this is always our tendency to worship that 
which we are able to accomplish ourselves. It always leads us to feeding on the ashes of our consequences, getting tangled and entrapped in the sinful nets of our own making. And that's the thing that Israel's suffering here. They have done this very thing. They have been like the nations around them. That's why God's bringing the judgment. And it's not just about making a block of wood, guys. It was about sacrificing their children. It was about sacrificing so much on that altar of selfishness that, that they did that hurt so many people. We read about so much in Proverbs about the lies and oppression and the way people would take advantage of one another and all that stuff that God hates. That's what that idolatry results in. It's not just this funny little picture of necessarily you know, making a block of wood and worshiping it. It's what all that leads to and how damaging it is to lives like we talked about, whether it's divorce or infidelity or drug use or crime or whatever it is. That's, those are the consequences of idolatry in whatever form it takes, whether it's a fishing net or whether it's like this lumberjack that's cutting down trees. And that's how chapter 1 ends, and we're just going to leave it at that. It really should end with the first verse of chapter 2. And it's a little bit of a spoiler because it goes on to say where Habakkuk says, now I'm going to wait and listen. Now I'm going to go and wait and hear what God said. I've, I've, presented these, I've presented my case to God, but now I'm intentionally going to go and I'm going to sit in this watchtower. I'm going to go and be quiet alone. I'm going to take time to wait and see and hear what God responds. And man, I think that's just this perfect picture of how we're to be with believers. We see this progression with Habakkuk where, again, he's, he sees problems in their culture. Does anybody else see problems in our culture today does any has anybody else gone to God and say God what can what are you doing here why are you allowing these things to happen why have you why have you allowed this guy to be elected president for goodness sake or this guy or or this position how can this be your will God wants us to come with those questions God wants us to know his word he wants us to be able to converse with him on a level that shows that we're familiar with his nature, his word. He doesn't condemn us for that ever. But again, to get to that place where we say, man, I'm willing to hear whatever you have to say in this situation because I know that that's when I'll be at peace. So next week, we'll pick up in chapter 2 and see, see what God does answer to these two complaints. So Lord, again, we come to you tonight. We worship you. We thank you for what you've done for us. And anything we can do for you or for one another is just the fruit of that, that we really have nothing to bring of our own. We're just grateful to you tonight, Lord. We pray for your forgiveness every day. We pray for your mercy. We pray help us to forgive others that we could enter into um, the fullness of joy. We praise you and worship you tonight in Jesus' name.